Let me pray for us. Welcome back. Got a really easy one today, so <laughs> should be should be pretty simple. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can gather again and uh, discuss these things, uh, sexuality and your design for it. And uh, Lord, we pause at the start of another class to acknowledge our need for your help, Lord, our need for your help to give us wisdom, to give us humility, uh, to help us um, just pursue truth, Lord, um, and also pursue love and and how to combine uh, the rich truths of your word with a a very loving um, um, embrace of them and, and portrayal of them. So I pray that uh, you would uh, give us the ability to do that this morning and, and help me as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we, are, we have been going through Song of Songs and as well as um, looking at different topics that it leads us to. Song of Songs has kind of been our home base, and there's been different subjects that we've looked closer at each week. So... Um, We'll be doing the same thing today. Um, Song of Songs has been building and building. Uh, the, the connection, the, the romance between these two can, keeps getting um, more serious. And last week, if you remember, the groom, he was uh, ready to kind of have the mar- marriage happen, to consummate the marriage. And, and he used the argument of, you know, just like spring has now bloomed, um, our relationship is ready to bloom and, and be, become one. But if you remember the bride, what did she say? She said, nope, we're going to wait a little longer. Um, It's not quite time yet. But now we get to the central section of Song of Songs. uh, And this is where their relationship is consummated and and the marriage happens. Um, And we're going to look at half of this central section today and then um, then, uh, the rest of it at another time. Um, So I'm going to just dive right in. We're at, we're at chapter 3, verse 6. So we, did, we went up to chapter 3, 5 last time, and we're at chapter 3, 6. I'm actually going to put the NIV right next to the ESV in this one because I think the NIV gets it better in this particular verse. Uh, the ESV says, what is that coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, but um, a, a more faithful, I would say, translation of the Hebrew is, who is that? Who is that? Who is this coming up from the wilderness? It's talking about a person. Um, Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Um, If you remember, this will come up twice actually today. Um, Back in chapter 1, she mentioned uh, just the perfume of frankincense and myrrh on her body and hoping that the scent of it would come to him at at a point in their relationship where he was not physically present. She was hoping that just he would be able to smell her from far away. But now you see kind of that coming full circle and... and, um, you know, her smell has now reached him. Um, and so the, the man is talking here about the woman. She's coming from the wilderness, and then he goes, uh, he goes on to describe something spectacular um, as, the, as the verse continues. Behold, it is the litter, and that word litter is um, the word for a palanquin, uh, which in that day, it's that, that thing on the right where they would... Um, 
you know, take someone of, of importance and carry them somewhere and something like that. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and, and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. I could spend a lot of time trying to unpack what just happened. I'm going to just give you three kind of glosses of the three possibilities of what is going on here. One possibility is that this is literally talking about Solomon. Um, This would make a lot of sense if Solomon would do something like this with how wealthy he was. But you'd have to go back. uh, If if you remember, we said that Solomon, the the view I'm taking is that Solomon, um, in throughout here, whenever he's referred to, um, it's not literal. It's not about Solomon and and one of his relationships. And I explain that in more detail in our first lesson. So if you want to go back and listen to that, um, that will explain why we do not think that this is actually literally talking about um, Solomon. Another more likely option, second option, is that this is a contrast. So he's, he's kind of mentioning Solomon to set up a contrast with um, after 3.11, it goes into 4 verse 1, and it'll start talking specifically about the bride. And so there's the, the idea that, okay, he's setting up Solomon in all of his pomp and grandeur, and that's going to be contrasted with um, the bride and her kind of simplicity and her more inner beauty, um, but her beauty in general, um, kind of to show the superiority of just the simplicity and the beauty of, of his bride compared to Solomon. Um, a third option is that this is just a metaphor for their whole marriage. Their whole, their whole not their marriage, their whole wedding ceremony. The idea, uh, it's speaking of their wedding as if it's a royal wedding. It's setting a, their simple wedding between these two, you know, this country, these two country folk that we've seen. They're, they're, they're more, um, they're not part of the royal family. It's setting their simple wedding in the context of the royal court in order to elevate their marriage and display its true grandeur. Um, and that's, that's, that's what I think is going on is that um, it's kind of speaking of his wife and their, kind of their, royal, their, their marriage procession um, in these royal words to just say this is, this is like a royal wedding. It's such a beautiful moment. Um, and if you think about it, any marriage between God's children is, spiritually speaking, a royal wedding um, between two children of the king. Um, it, it also just helps see just how value, highly valued marriage is to the Lord. And so what is coming up out of the wilderness? That's what's asked in verse 6. It's a royal wedding procession. And then um, the focus zeroes in on the bride as it continues. It's almost as if the bride is now coming down the aisle and uh, the focus, you know, everyone is, all their heads are turned uh, towards her. They, they first look at the groom and, and see his excitement, but then we turn our gaze to the bride. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. 
Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Um, the verse 5 where it talks about her breasts, the, it's a picture of gentleness and fertility. Um, obviously, fawns would often come in pairs, and usually you only catch a glimpse of them before they go back into the woods. So, so there's this er, er, erotic nature to that verse. But remember, as, as Riken has said often, uh, Song of Songs is erotic without being pornographic. Um, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Um, we'll, we'll finish um, chapter 4 uh, next time. Well, actually, in two weeks, I'll explain that. Um, but all of chapter 4 is what is called in ancient literature an epithalmion. Um, so it's a wedding song where it sets the beauty of the bride to music. The, the beauty of the bride is being set to music here. Um, and so the answer of who is, finally, who is coming from the wilderness is finally fully answered um, in chapter 4. And then he begins to praise her physical qualities um, in even more detail now. This is the most detail he's gone into now, praising her physical qualities. Um, and this is appropriate because they're nearing their wedding night. Uh, one author called chapter 4 just verbal foreplay, um, where he's just, it's just getting more and more intimate between them. Um, and he describes seven different parts of her body. And so that's, seven is the, one of the qualities of the number seven in Hebrew is perfection. And so, you know, there's, by, by describing seven parts of her, he doesn't have to describe any other part of her, um, especially as poetry went in that day, because that was him communicating her perfection by just describing seven different parts of her body. Um, verses six and seven, well, verse six um, is actually a reference to her breasts. Uh, the, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh in the hill of frankincense. And, and if you remember back in chapter one, my beloved is to me a statue of myrrh resting between my breasts. And there's another mention of, of her having the perfume on her breasts. And so this is where he's now coming full circle. And, and now the, you know, the desire for that intimacy in chapter 1 is now um, he's, it's getting closer. So it's, again, it's, 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 it's erotic without being pornographic. And the context of all of this makes all the difference. Um, I actually took it off of the slide, unfortunately. I should have kept it on. But uh, verse 8, he starts referring to her as bride. And this is the first time in Song of Songs he'll start referring to her as bride. And so, um, and we'll get into that um, down the road. And so it's showing that everything about sexuality in Song of Songs is in the context of marriage. Um, And that marriage, of course, is between a man and a woman. And that's going to kind of be important for what we're about to talk about. So I'm going to pause there. That's, that's kind of my quick gloss of today's passage. If you remember the first lesson, I'm not, this is not an in-depth Bible study of Song of Songs, but um, just kind of getting some of the, the basics of it. So any questions or comments before I shift gears a little bit about any of that? All right. So 
Um, I'm going to talk about same-sex attraction and transgender today and next week. Um, these are two major competitors to that biblical view of marriage that, and sexuality um, that you know, Song of Songs and, and obviously the rest of the Bible talks about. Um, and I'll remind us, the Bible doesn't give us a thorough, lengthy theology of homosexuality or transgender though it definitely speaks to it, and we'll, we'll get into that. The Bible gives us a thorough, full theology of marriage, and what we think about homosexuality and transgender is just one outworking of what the Bible shows us about marriage, which is what the Song of Songs has been doing so far. While Song of Songs is beautifully affirming what biblical marriage and sexuality is, it's important also, as we go through it, to speak, to speak about um, you know, what is not uh, put forward as biblical, you know, what, what marriage isn't or what sexuality isn't. And so wanted to take, take that moment to talk about, you know, two major competitors to this biblical view of marriage, and that is same-sex attraction and, and transgender. I'm going to talk a little bit more about same-sex attraction this week and a little bit more about transgender next week, although there will be overlap. Uh, same-sex attraction, homosexuality, it needs no introduction, really, in terms of its relevance. I don't need to tell you about how relevant this topic is, you know, in our country, but also especially in the church. I don't need to tell you that it's a controversial topic. Um, I don't need to tell you that it's a very difficult subject to cover. It's complex. It's controversial. It's also very sensitive. It involves real people, real image bearers with real struggles, so you can't just stay in the abstract. You can't just deal th with this from the abstract. Um, these, are, these are real issues that I know many of you have very good, important questions about and things you're wrestling with in your own lives. So what does it take for Christians to engage a topic like this well? Well, what does it take for a Christian to engage any topic well? We need to both be theologically rooted but we also need to be pastorally oriented. Pastorally oriented just means just being compassionate. And so we need, you know, the Bible talks about the categories of having grace and truth and holding together, having compassion and conviction. Um, you know, I heard one, I was reading one person who said, okay, there's some Christians who need to repent of their homosexuality, but there's also Christians who need to repent of their homophobia. Um, and that's just kind of a, a more full, holistic picture of, of, you know, the different struggles different people can have when talking about this. And so a, a picture that came to my mind as I was thinking about this was a rescue worker jumping out of a helicopter to save someone. Um, think of, I think about that, you know, that cord that is the, the rescue worker is connected to the helicopter. They have to stay anchored to the helicopter, and you need to stay rooted in the helicopter so that they can jump into hard places. Um, but, you know, they also need to be able to, to jump out and jump into hard places. And I, I, I think that's somewhat of an image of what I'm trying to get out of just being theologically rooted, staying anchored to the Word and the truth of the Word, but also allowing our, our anchored, being anchored in that to allow it, let us jump into hard places with, with love. If it's the truth of the Bible that sets us free... We needed to be rooted in that truth to know how to bring struggling people to true freedom that the Bible offers. 
And so I'm going to be spending a little bit more time on theological rootedness the next two weeks. Um, We'll definitely get into some practicals, um, but some of the practicals apply to any difficult situation of just what does it look like to just treat people as image bearers and love them well. Um, So we'll get into a little bit of both, but mostly theological rootedness, which brings me uh, to this position paper. Um, which I'll kind of explain the context of it as we go. The position paper that came out a couple years ago by our denomination that, that kind of is trying to help us engage in these things well, it actually deals with um, same-sex attraction more than it does transgender. There's really only one of the statements in it that deals specifically with transgender, so I'm going to talk more about transgender next week. That's why. Um, So one of the things to know, to kind of give context to the position paper, is um, three approaches that Christians take. There's more than that, but the three main approaches that the Christian church um, in the world takes on homosexuality um, can be described in these three ways, side A, side B, and then I've not heard a a term. If someone knows it, let me know, but I just called it the traditional view. But side A is, is... um, approach in some Christian circles where they, the way they read the Bible, they actually think the Bible allows for certain kinds of homosexuality. You know, they, they believe that contextually the kind of homosexuality condemned in the Bible is an abusive kind. It's a specific kind of homosexuality. It's not all kinds. And so, like, for someone to have a very committed, um, you know, same-sex uh, marriage um, is, is good. And um, one popular proponent of this is what's called the Gay Christian Network. I don't know how big they are these days. And, and um, that actually came out of uh, a movement in the 90s called Exodus International, um, which was a, a nonprofit kind of doing what's called conversion therapy. And, um, you know, there were some good things about that. There were actually some things that, that they maybe um, weren't as, um, you know, combination of theologically rooted and gracious and so there was this a huge reaction to some of the unhealthiness of exodus international that eventually resulted in side a and side b christianity side b is this idea of embracing your gay orientation so um, if you have same-sex attraction um, and you're a believer you can still call yourself gay a gay Christian, and that's, that's a, a phrase that has been a, a hot-button issue that the position paper talks about. And so, um, but they also hold um, kind of a traditional view of marriage, that you cannot, um, you know, allow your same-sex attraction to result in, a, you know, a full-on marriage. And so you've maybe heard of Revoice. That's a conference in St. Louis um, that there's been a lot of controversy around in our denomination where this kind of side B approach to um, homosexuality is uh, promoted. And then you have what I'll just call the traditional view um, that kind of captures the, the, the concerns that many in our denomination have had with, with the Revoice Conference. And, um, and so this position paper speaks more specifically to side B um, in this discussion than it does side A because there's really no one in our denomination that holds the side A position. All right. So that's just a little, here's a little more context. Someone 
uh, there was a group of churches that kind of reported to our general assembly, which is the, kind of the whole church of the PCA, and, and said, um, please form a committee to study the topic of human sexuality with particular attention to the issues of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and transgender. Help pastors and elders shepherd congregations who are dealing with these things. And it asks for suggested ways to articulate and defend a biblical understanding of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and transgenderism in the context of a culture that denies that understanding. So it's a very big document, but they did a good job of just kind of at the beginning of it, they have a preamble, which is like a page and a half, and then they have 12 statements. So those, they, they said, if you're going to read anything, just read those two things. And that's what we're going to discuss, mainly the 12 statements. Um, in this class. I, I definitely commend all the other appendixes that they have in there that go into more depth um, on some of the, you know, theology and, and psychology. Um, but that has these 12 statements. And each statement, I, I think they did a good job where there are, it starts with just a theological affirmation. This is where we stand theologically. But then everyone, it, it, the, um, the second part of it, it says, nevertheless, and then it gets more pastoral and, and recognizes, okay, yes, we believe in this and we affirm this theological truth, but nevertheless, that doesn't give us license to, you know, treat people, um, you know, not as image bearers. So you, you'll kind of see as we go that the nevertheless part of it um, is where they're trying to um, have compassion um, along with the conviction. They, they use the language in the preamble of having the pastoral task, um, that's sort of the um, being sensitive with the apologetic task of defending the truth. They try their yes. That uh, that was actually a question I had too as I read it, and um, I don't know if if someone in here, Mike, do you do you know? It, does the PCA distinguish between homosexuality and same-sex attraction? He's he's asking about that. Okay, I I could see them saying homosexuality is, you know, someone who's fully embraced it. Maybe they're distinguishing between, you know, people who both have same-sex attraction, but one who's fully embracing it, and the other one who just that's not part of their identity. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's a good question, Al. I don't have a full answer to that. All right. So I'm going to just start going into each of the 12 statements. I want to warn you, I'm going to paraphrase it at some times. It's, some of them are very long, um, and I just didn't think it was the best use for our time to just read them all wrote. Um, so some of them, I just kind of put it into my own words for sake of brevity and clarity, which the first one I do. So statement one is just on marriage. And so it basically says marriage and sex is between one man and one woman. That's what the Bible teaches. I don't think anyone in here is surprised by that. Uh, they make a great point, though, that part of the reason that um, we have to defend this view of marriage is because Ephesians 5 says marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And, um, you know, human sexuality and marriage is ultimately given to us uh, 
ultimately as a signpost of something bigger that God is doing in the universe. He's, he's making a people f- um, for his son. And so um, the only way that this is a picture of Christ in the church is if it's you know, a, a, a marriage between one man and one woman. Um, and so that's, that's, that helps us to see a, a little bit more of the importance of, of holding to this. One of the things that's at stake is portraying the, Christ, the picture of Christ in the church. Um, nevertheless, just because you are married doesn't mean you can't sin sexually. Um, so all other forms of sexual unity are sinful, but this is a great point. Just because you're married doesn't mean you can't sin sexually. We're going to talk about that um, later on in this study where we talk about marital conflict over sex where um, there, can, there can be a lot of sinning sexually between a husband and wife. Um, not all sex within marriage is sinless. Sexual morality also, they say, is not an unpardonable sin. Sometimes you can treat people who have unique struggles in the area of sexuality as kind of this, they're almost kind of marginalized. And, and, and so those are just helpful things to say. Um, but just kind of theologically real quick, first, you know, I mentioned to you the side A who's, who believes the Bible allows for same-sex marriage. Um, you know, the whole thing they mention of, you know, when the Bible talks about it, it's just these unique instances of it. Well, 1 Corinthians 9 is one of the areas where we see that it's talking about just any normal um, relationship and sexuality. Do not know what wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. And the footnote, in the ESV at least, it says the words men who have sex with men translate two Greek words. Uh, those are arsakonatoi and malakoi. You, you're so glad now that you know that. Um, that refer to the passive and active participants in homosexual acts. Um, and so that's, you know, it's not just talking about abuses of it. It's talk, that, that's, that's a way to talk about um, just a, a consensual homosexual relationship. <clears throat> All right, so that's, that was statement one. Probably no surprises there. Statement two is the, really the only one where they talk about transgender. Um, it's about the image of God. So created male, we're created male and female in his image. The human body is good. We're called to glorify God in our bodies. And I think this is a really good point they make. God is a God of order and design. He opposes the confusion of man and woman, and woman is man. And 1 Corinthians 11 is one example of that, where it, it kind of doesn't, it says for men to not um, act like women. While it can be heartbreaking when there's confusion, men and women should be helped to live in accordance with their biological sex. Nevertheless, compassion to those who are confused by their gender identity, effects of the fall, um, so that we, they, 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 they promote compassion to those who are confused, and they say the effects of the fall extended the corruption of our whole nat- nature, including how we think of our gender. Moreover, in rare instances, some may possess an objective medical condition where their anatomical development may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal sex. We'll talk about that more next week, but that's t- referring to people who are intersex. That's a very, 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 very small part of the population, but we'll, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more next week. Um, such persons are in the image of God and should live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. So they're just trying to be nuanced there um, and considerate of all um, situations. Statement three is about original sin. 
uh, and I'm paraphrasing again, we are all sinners from Adam. We ought to grieve our sin, hate our sin, turn from our sin unto God, and endeavor to walk with God in obedience to his commandments. Um, and that, you'll see the importance of setting that up for what's next, where we need to, all Christians need to have a sense of wanting to fight against the sin in their life. Nevertheless, God does not wish for believers to live in perpetual misery for their sins, which are forgiven. Um, and so, you know, especially for someone who experiences just this constant same-sex attraction, um, what they're saying is that person should not live in perpetual misery because they um, kind of have that temptation all the time. Yes, that's sin, which we'll get into, that they need to confess and repent of and work against. Um, but at the same time, we are, there's no condemnation in Christ. If this person is just always in this sense of guilt um, and their life is crippled by the guilt, um, that is not what you know, freedom in Christ looks like. This is what they're trying to say. By the Spirit, we're able to make spiritual progress and do good works, not perfectly, but truly. Even our imperfect works are made acceptable through Christ. All right. Statement four. This is where it gets more complex, where we get more into the weeds. And this is where, you know, me talking about expressive individualism a couple weeks ago for so long, uh, where you start to see some of the relevance of why uh, we need to understand our culture of expressive individualism that kind of elevates our inner desires um, above everything else, above any other authority. Um, our own internal passions, you know, rule is sort of the... the the adage. And so, you know, again, there's many, even in Christianity, who, who use this idea of, of same-sex orientation, that they're born this way, seeing sexual orientation as an accurate category of personhood. Um, and so this is beginning to address that theologically. So desire, even our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. And I'll share some passages in a second that show that biblically. The, direct, the desire for an illicit end, whether that's you know, the desire for a same-sex um, you know, attraction or any, any illicit desire disconnected from biblical marriage, you know, lusting towards someone who's not your wife, etc., is itself an illicit desire. Therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. That's a very important point that they make. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. Nevertheless, we must celebrate that despite the continuing presence of sinful desires and even egregious sinful behavior acting on those desires, repentant, justified, and adopted believers are free from condemnation and are able to please God. So just kind of biblically, as a, 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had 1 Peter 2, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. In the same way, count yourselves, Romans 6, as dead to sin, alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Romans 7, Colossians 3, they all kind of use this similar word in the Greek that um, says even the kind of involuntary desire that can just kind of automatically arise in us unchecked. Um, even the presence of that, uh, we need to be able to say, um, is sin. And if you say it's sin, that's, that goes in the face of just this idea that, you know, okay, just having the, the desire towards same-sex attraction that kind of just comes up automatically, um, you know, that, that's not sin. It's just if you act on it. 
That's what they're trying to, and they'll get more into that as they go on. Um, and I've been so convicted, just kind of going back through those passages lately, of just because I have I have the same struggles in my, myself of just having having these these thoughts, these des, you know evil desires that just come up in my life um, every day, and, and and just kind of being reminded of these passages and this idea has been so convicting even for me, and of really continuing to work to. Um, through the Spirit, um, mortify those things in my own life. So then we get to, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's going to get into that a little bit more specifically next. But yes. Yes. It's any desire... Um, that comes up in us. <clears throat> All right, big word for the day, concus- I can't even say it. <laughs> concupiscence, concupiscence. Say concupiscence. <laughs> All right, I'm going to just let the document speak for itself here to kind of explain it. We affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in, in us prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will. All right, so that's what we were just talking about. This kind of automatic desire that can come up with us that's, that's um, contrary to God's will. Um, they're saying even those that come up in us, even before we really act on them, we acknowledge that they are still sin. Um, and some of that is rooted in, in, just, in just the reality of original sin. We reject the Roman Catholic understanding. So this is kind of now specifically speaking to a Catholic doctrine of concupiscence, whereby disordered desires that conflict us due to the fall they are not sin until we act on them. These desires within us are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous and sinful. Um, uh, but they say, nevertheless, we recognize that many persons who experience same-sex attraction describe their desires as arising in them unbidden and unwanted. That's a very important kind of pastoral point to make. You know, you can take the truth of the theological truth that was just said and, and use it in a kind of insensitive way. We also recognize that the presence of same-sex attraction is often owing to many factors, which always include our own sin nature and may include being sinned against in the past. As with any sinful pattern or propensity, which may include disordered desires, extramarital lust, pornographic addiction, all abusive sexual behavior, the actions of others, though never full, finally determinative, can be significant and influential. This should move us to compassion and understanding. So, yeah, they're just trying to say, yes, this is sin and we need to name that and we need to encourage people to fight against sin. But we also can have compassion that there are different things in life that can make us more vulnerable to different kinds of sin. Moreover, it is true for all of us that sin can be both unchosen bondage and idolatrous rebellion at the same time. We all experience sin at times as a kind of voluntary servitude, and that's sort of what Paul describes in Romans 7. Even what I don't want to do, I do. Um, so here I will um, give a quote from Christopher Yuan, incredible thought thinker on these things. He has an unbelievable testimony that I encourage all of you to look up of um, how his mom prayed for him for 10 years. And he went into drug dealing and, you know, 
struggled with same-sex attraction, was in the homosexual lifestyle, and then came out and is now a professor at Moody. He has this great six-minute video on YouTube where he answers the question. I already forget the question that he's answering in it, but it's um, basically, are you born gay? And he starts to show, he, he shows even recent research that genetics only play a small role in determining sexual orientation. That's kind of the argument that it's all genetics. And he, and he shows that even research by people who would want to be able to argue that it's genetics are starting to see that it's, it's not nearly as factorial as they thought. Genetics can predict, can't predict whether a person is gay or straight. He, he, I, would, I would wish we could have more time to go into that. And then he has this helpful phrase, sexuality is not who you are, it's how you are. Um, it's not kind of a statement about your ontology and your being, it's, it's a statement about your behavior, one of the behaviors you struggle with. And then Rosaria Butterfield, who's in Durham, uh, she says, kind of um, related to that whole con con concupiscence, <laughs> it matters not whether the desire for evil is involuntary or voluntary. The standard of rightness for a desire is God's law, not the chosenness of the desire. So that's just trying to kind of argue for that whole point. Then they talk about temptation. They say the Bible kind of uses the same word for temptation in multiple ways. One of the ways is talking about our trials in our life, like maybe a, a sickness. James, James, at the beginning of James, talks about the trials we face, and that's the same word as it uses later for like the inner temptations we have. And so um, temptations from God are, are morally neutral trials, and then temptations not from God are these morally illicit desires that James 1 talks about. When the temptation comes from without, from outside of us, it's not sin unless we act on it. When it comes from within, it is our own act and is rightly called sin. Nevertheless, there's an important degree of moral difference between temptation to sin and giving in to sin. The, the Westminster Confession even talks about in the larger catechism, you know, some sins being more heinous than others. Um, and that would be a whole other class to explain that well, but Christians should feel their greatest responsibility not for the occurrence of the temptations, but for resisting them. The ultimate goal, of course, is for the internal temptation to go away. So they're just saying, okay, we need to work on these you know, unwanted desires that come up, but also acting on it. And they're saying the greatest responsibility at first should be not acting on those desires, but also continuing to work on changing our desires through the Holy Spirit through different means. And it goes on. Christians should, okay. I already read that part. They should feel their greatest responsibility not for the fact that such temptations occur, but for thoroughly and immediately fleeing and resisting them when they arise. We can avoid entering into temptation by refusing to internally ponder and entertain the proposal and desire to sin. Without some distinct, this is, this, is their this is their rationale. Without some distinction between the temptations that arise in us due to original sin, so like someone having this unwanted same-sex attraction, with a distinction between that and the willful giving over to it, so acting on it, without a distinction between that, Christians will be too discouraged to make every effort at growth and godliness and will feel like failures in their necessary efforts to be holy as God is holy. God is pleased with our sincere obedience, even though it may be accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. I think they're just trying there to, to say it's okay to still talk about, you know, aspects of this are unwanted and part of the original sin of the fall, um, Yes, there's still sin, um, but also we need to focus on, and, and maybe at first especially just focus on our, you know, not acting on those. 
Um, then they talk about sanctification. They're basically just trying to start to talk about what does caring for someone with same-sex attraction look like? What is the end goal? Is it that they'll become heterosexual and become married? No, Christopher Yuan does a great job of saying the, the end goal is holiness. What we're talking about and what we're longing for them, it's not necessarily that they'll become heterosexual and get married. Um, it's, it's that they'll be holy um, and holiness and chastity. All right, so Christians need to pursue holiness. The goal is not just consistent fleeing from and regular resistance to temptation, but the diminishment and even the end of the occurrences of the desires through the reordering of the loves in one's heart. And in Christ, we can make that progress. Nevertheless, the believer who struggles with same-sex attraction should expect to grow in holiness. But this progress, this is a great, important point they make, is often slow and uneven. Um, We need to have just a very patient and slow approach. Moreover, Growth in holiness involves the whole person, not simply unwanted sexual desires. The aim of sanctification in one's sexual life cannot be reduced to attraction to persons of the opposite sex, though some persons may experience movement in this direction, but rather involves growing in grace and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. All right, so I was hoping to get through all 12 statements today. I'm not going to be able to. I'm going to just call an audible right now. Um, Because next week, that's why I left off. So next week, I'm not going to have the first part about Song of Songs. We'll wait two weeks to get back into Song of Songs. And next week, I'm going to finish these statements as well as talk more um, about transgenderism, which the position paper, as you saw, doesn't quite get into quite as much. But I want to just give a couple minutes at the end to pause for any questions or comments. That was a lot. That was a fire hose that just came at you. Um, and I wanted to give us a little breathing room to uh, you know, process. So any questions or comments, I, I warn you that I probably won't be able to answer your questions, but I'll try. Yes, Scott. Yes. 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 Did everyone catch that? What Scott just said? All right, all right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try my best to repeat it. So he was just basically trying to clarify even further um, Michael's question about, okay, is it also speaking to any, you know, unwanted desire, like if I'm in traffic and I get angry? And so Scott was just saying that the anger is actually not the unwanted desire. That's, that's anger is giving into something deeper, and the, the something deeper is the impatience. And so he's saying kind of this automatic unwanted desire is um, impatience and, and we need to work on both not acting on that impatience, but we also need to do the harder work that Scott was just saying of even um, reordering the impatience to, to patience. Does that kind of get at? Yeah. Yes, Matt. Yeah. Yep.
where do you, from at least, yeah, I didn't put the whole statement up here, first of all. Um, I kind of summarized it. But you're saying, you're asking, is the statement um, arguing theologically that God created our bodies but um, did not create the, the conflicts within our minds and how we deal with our bodies? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I would say, yeah, I mean, he obviously created our minds, but he, uh, yeah, any, any conflict inside of us is not from God. It's, it's a result of the fall. It's, it's our sin. It's, it's because of sin. I, I, that's, that's, yes, Mike. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Yes. Is that, okay, I want to just make sure, Matt, is that at all getting at what you're trying to ask? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to speak more to that next week, and hopefully next week talking about transgender will maybe touch on some of that. Yes, Ross asked, sorry, Ross, actually, his hand was up first. Sorry, Will. I'm going to. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, an, that's a good question, and that's an important thing that this paper is trying to help us do, to say, okay, and I, I've heard someone say that, you know, um, you know, if someone is struggling with same-sex attraction, they need to talk to trusted people about that because that's, you know, that's a sinful desire that in the Christian context, and we as a church need to be a place where people can talk about that. But they also, um, you know, some, some who would kind of be more of the mindset of, of kind of against the side B Christianity is, they say kind of coming out on social media, coming out of the closet to all of society is, is actually, it's not, comp- they don't completely say you shouldn't do that, but, but in some ways it can be unhelpful because you just start, that, like that's the only way people view you. And rather the, the more ideal situation is, 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 yes, of course you need to be talking about that with people, but you know, try to keep it amongst trusted friends. So there's a lot of people kind of who would agree with sort of the things in this position paper who struggle with same-sex attraction, but they don't, they don't come out um, publicly like on social media like a lot of people inside B do, and they kind of like, this is who they are. They're a Christian who struggles with this, but it's more the people closest to them that know this struggle of theirs. So that, that would be at least one answer I'd give to that. And, and yeah, I think... From, from someone who doesn't struggle with same-sex attraction is being able to enter into a relationship with a person um, with humility of just knowing you have, you know, similar sin struggles towards unwanted desires t- towards other things. Um, and be able to enter into that with humility to not sort of just, you know, pigeonhole that person and kind of view them, um, uh, you know, as less than human. So... That's kind of a brief answer to a really good question. Yeah. Well, I'm going to I'm going to let you ask your question, but if you need to go, you need to
Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, it wasn't. I'm glad you said that. Yes, this paper, you can just Google PCA position paper sexuality, and it is available online. I encourage you to look at it. Father, thank you for this chance to discuss these things. Lord, uh, I know we have many other questions. Um, help us, give us wisdom as we continue talking about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I will say, please email me or talk to me if you have further questions, because you know, next week we'll have a little more time. I, I would really love any quest specific questions you have about any areas of, of these things. I'd love to deal with them.